So 20 years, not so much considering we're worshiping in a building that's 180 years old, but a long time for us. And anniversary celebrations always tend to draw you back, back to the past, back to what was. Famous author William Faulkner wrote, the past is never dead. It's not even the past. And that's true, isn't it? The past is very, very much a part of our present. It shapes us. It molds us. It's made us who we are. It informs the decisions we make, even in the present. It's always with us. And sometimes our past is something that we have to overcome. But with the, the good and the gentle work of the Spirit that dwells within us, we are able to deal with people and situations and even sinful choices in the past that might have bruised or broken us. But the past is much more than that. As you and I look to our past as individuals and as a church family, we see there the fingerprints of God's faithfulness. Do you see that when you look into your past? Do you look for the, the fingerprints of God's faithfulness? The past faithfulness of God, it's what inspires us with hope for the future. For the next 20 years, if God so ordains that we should be here. You know, God had his people set up piles of stones from time to time in their story. And they were to be memorials, and they were called Ebenezers. And the word Ebenezer, as we've talked about before, means thus far has the Lord led us. And so in the future, as people encounter those piles of stones, they would look to the past, and they would remember the faithfulness of God. They would remember the guiding hand of God. They would remember the hand of God that so graciously and bountifully provided for all of their needs. And they could be certain in those moments that the God who never changes would be faithful into their future. And so this anniversary celebration today, it's, it's sort of like our Ebenezer. It's our saying, thus far has the Lord led us. But we're not only looking back, we're looking to the future. Where are we going? What are our hopes? For what will we be dependent on God's faithfulness and His abundant grace to accomplish in our future? This I know. We need not be afraid. Sometimes the future is a scary place, isn't it? Because it's unknown to us. But we need not fear. I know this. We can trust God's faithfulness to accomplish His purposes in us and through us. We can. We can trust God's faithfulness to accomplish His purposes in us and through us. This morning I want us to talk about just three goals. Three goals for Redeemer. For tomorrow, next week, next month, and next year. And the next 20 years, if the Lord ordains it to be so. The good news is we aren't left to wonder about what goals those are. We don't have to pull them out of thin air, you know. No, we have the word of God to guide and direct us. So having said that, I'm going to ask you to take out your Bibles, if you have them, and turn to the book of Ephesians, chapter 4. I believe I saw that it's on page 711 in the uh, Pew Bible in front of you. Please help yourself to that if you need to. 
And when you found your place in Ephesians chapter 4, I'm going to ask you to stand as we hear read together the word of the living God. Ephesians chapter 4, beginning in verse 11, this is the word of the Lord. And he, Christ, gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ, until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in Him in every way, who is the head into Christ, from whom the whole body, joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. Let's pray together. Lord, bless our time in your word, we pray. Thank you for it. Thank you, Spirit of God, that you interpret this inspired word for us. We ask now that through your true word, you would speak to us, not only as individuals, but as a church. Lord, that we would seek you, we would seek your will, your plan, your goals for us, and be faithful as you reveal them to us to carry them out in our lives. For we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. Now, I want you to imagine a circle. And there are 250 individual dots that form this circle. And in the very center of this circle of 250 dots, there is one single dot. Then imagine that all of these 250 dots in unison move forward three feet. Now, in the moment that that movement takes place, all 250 dots are closer to the dot in the center, and at the same time, they are closer to one another. Now, if you ask me, Craig, what is your hope for Redeemer? What's your vision for Redeemer? What's your prayer for Redeemer? What's your goal for Redeemer? Tomorrow and the next day and the next day, this would be it. You and I, we are the dots around the circle. And Christ is the dot, capital T, capital D, right in the center. And so our goal as a church must always and must first and foremost be moving closer and closer and closer to the dot, to the Lord Jesus Christ. That's our goal. Look in verse 13. The Apostle Paul puts it this way, until we all, all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, knowing Christ. Look in verse 15, we are to grow up in every way into Him who is the head into Christ. That's our goal, all of us together, knowing Christ, growing in Christ. That's the goal that unifies us. Christ must be central. 
to everything we do as a church. Christ must be central to all things in our lives. And look, this is not some random thought of Paul's that he just happens to throw in to this letter to the Ephesians over and over in the New Testament. We read about the centrality of Christ in all things, especially in the life of Paul. So I want you to listen to some verses and see how your life compares to, to, to them. First is Ephesians 1.21. The Apostle Paul writes, For me to live is Christ. Can you believe it? For Paul, life and Christ are one and the same. Christ is his life without life. Jesus is not an add-on to the life of Paul. He is central to it. To live is Christ. What would it take for you to make that statement about your own life? How willing are you to, to change your life so that Christ and no one else and no thing else is central to your life? To feel. That if you don't have Christ, you really don't have life. Philippians 3.8 Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For His sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. 1 Corinthians 2.2 for I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. The knowledge of Christ is more important to Paul than any other knowledge. Now think about that. In our age of information, think about the, all that there is for you and for me to know. Think about all the things that you really want to know. How often do we really truly think that knowing Christ is more valuable than any other knowledge we can possibly have. Colossians 1.18 And He is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything He might be preeminent. Christ first in all things. Colossians 3.3 for you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with Him in glory. Christ is our life. It must be a goal for you and for me, for our church, to make Him central. We've, we've got to keep moving forward, moving toward the dot, moving toward Christ. We have no other reason to exist. Our goal has got to be getting closer and closer and closer to Christ. Everything else has got to be secondary. And so the question for us becomes, why would Christ not be central to our lives? And the only answer to that question, if He is not central, is because we don't really see Him for who He is. Look in verse 13. Paul writes there about the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. We don't even have to exegete those words, and we're not going to, to get a sense or a feeling of what Paul is trying to say to us. There is a fullness in the person of Christ, a measure, an immensity to Christ that we cannot fully comprehend on this side of heaven. 
Samuel Rutherford. You're going to be hearing a lot about Samuel Rutherford. Let me just tell you, he's my new favorite. He's my buddy. We spend every day on my deck together uh, throughout the course of this summer. But Samuel Rutherford was a famous 17th century Scottish Presbyterian. He's also one of the Westminster divines, one of the men who participated in writing the Westminster Confession. And this is what he writes in the letter. Every day, every day, we may see some new thing in Christ. His love hath neither brim nor bottom. Now, do you believe that? Truly, every day, something new to see about Christ. Because Christ can't be contained. There's no brim. There's no bottom to him. The fullness of Christ can't be contained. Scripture says that people who saw Jesus in his day were amazed by him. They said nothing like this has ever been seen in Israel. Nothing has ever been seen like this in Israel. Others said we have never heard anyone speak like this. And so if you and I are not really amazed by Jesus, then we are not really seeing him. And we are not really hearing him. Because to see Jesus... And to hear Jesus is to be amazed by Him. And to be amazed by Him means to make Him central to our lives. If I am being faithful to my calling as pastor of this church, and I pray, I pray that the Lord will make me faithful to this call, then what I will be doing is always moving you and me together toward the dot. Doing all that I can with all the energy and all the strength that the Lord gives me to put before our eyes together as a church the beauty and the loveliness of Christ. And I want to tell you this. If I'm not doing that, you need to come to me and say, Craig, that was good. Always start with a compliment, you know. (laughs) That was really good and all, but you did not show us Jesus today. And I promise you this. If that's the case, I will repent before you and I will ask you to pray for me that I will do better next time because there's nothing more important than you and I together seeing Christ. I don't stand here to moralize. I don't stand here to give you three or four or five or seven steps to a better you because this is not about self-help. This is about Jesus. And it's about making him central to all things in our lives. Listen, even good things. Things like feeding the hungry, clothing the naked, seeking justice for the oppressed, obliterating prejudice and racism. All of those things are vitally important goals, but they must not replace the dot in the center. And the dot in the center is the Lord Jesus Christ. And so when we see him and his beauty, we'll so easily give him that central position in our lives and in our life together as a church. So let's make it our goal for the next 20 years if the Lord tarries. All of us attaining to the unity of the faith of the knowledge of the Son of God and all of us growing in every way unto him who is the head into Christ So that's our big overarching goal. I said there were three goals. The next two are actually just sub-goals to this one overarching goal. 
So the second, the, the, the sub-goal is this, that you and I must make it a goal of our lives to see ourselves as gifted people. We've got to see ourselves as gifted people. And that isn't being egocentric. That isn't being braggadocious. Look at me, I'm gifted, I'm gifted. That's not what I mean. It's just being biblical. Look in verse 11. The Apostle Paul writes, And he, Jesus, gave. That's what Jesus does. He is a giver. And in giving, he's just modeling his father. His father, who so loved the world that he what? Gave. His only son. God did not withhold from us. He gave to us the very, very best that he had. And the son was willing to be given. Jesus did not consider equality with God something to be grasped. But he emptied himself and he took the form of a servant. And now it's the son who gives to us. Look in verse 7. But grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. Look in verse 8. When he ascended on high, he led a host of captives, and he gave gifts to men. So we're getting the message, right? Verse 7, 8, and 11. He gave, he gave, he gave. Jesus gives to us good gifts to his people. Here in chapter uh, uh, verse 11, we have a representative uh, list of gifts. Apostles, prophets, evangelists, shepherds, teachers. It's not an exhaustive list. There are gifts not mentioned here, like like deacon. Deacons are vital to the life of a church. Where would we be without them? They're they're the Lord's gift to us. 1 Corinthians 12 gives an extensive list of gifts that aren't mentioned here. And we're not going to spend any time talking about any of these gifts. Instead, we're just going to focus on this, that Jesus gives to all. Jesus gives to all of his people. 1 Corinthians 12, 4. Now there are varieties of gifts, but the same Spirit. And there are varieties of service, but the same Lord. And there are varieties of activities, but it's the same God who empowers them all in everyone. To each is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. Did you hear that? Everyone, each, is given a gift. The Apostle Peter writes in 1 Peter 4.10, As each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. Let me tell you, if you are a child of God, a follower of the Lord Jesus Christ, then it is undeniable that you are a gifted person. You have received a gift from Christ. The question becomes... Do you know what gift the Lord has given to you? Do you care to know what gift Christ has given to you? Do you value the gift? What does Christ's gift mean to you? Years ago, I told you the story. Probably nobody's left it, remembers it, but the ones who stood up earlier. About a wedding gift that Kathy and I received. It was a set of fondue forks with little seashells glued to the top of them. Needless to say, it did not head the list of our favorite gifts we received at our wedding, but it did become the most memorable 
gift that we ever received. Because under the tissue paper, the bottom of the box, we discovered a small card. And on the card was written, Merry Christmas from Bob and Mary. Now, Bob and Mary did not give us this wedding gift. Now, Bob and Mary received this gift from someone else. And so Kathy and I knew in that moment, oh, we have been re-gifted. And the people who bought that gift for us didn't buy that gift for us. They, they didn't even think about who we are when they bought that gift. They were simply fulfilling an obligation to give a gift that cost them nothing. In fact, I'm sure they were glad to be rid of the gift. Just as glad as Kathy and I were when we re-gifted it to someone else. Another couple, but it was a joke. We began to see ourselves as gifted people, and we value those gifts. When we understand what it cost Jesus to give those gifts to us. Look in verse 8. When Paul writes, When Jesus ascended on high, he led a host of captives, and he gave gifts to men. Paul is evoking in the mind of his readers a a picture, a familiar picture of the Roman general who has conquered his enemy. The general who defeated the enemy and received the spoils of that conquest for himself. And so Jesus, like that Roman general, had to fight a mighty battle in order to be able to give gifts to us. Listen, Jesus had to go up against Satan the one whose scripture calls the prince of the world and the prince of the power of the air. He had to go up against the one who tempted him when Jesus was at his most vulnerable in the desert, fasting 40 days and 40 nights. Satan, the enemy, left him for more opportune time. How about Jesus then in the Garden of Gethsemane, the night before his death? As he anticipated going to the cross and he sweat great drops of blood praying for the cup to pass from him. Jesus had to go up against his enemy. He had to defeat him in order to give gifts to you and to me. And he did go up against him. Jesus, our Savior, your Savior and my Savior did not relent. He did not give up on his mission to give to us. To give gifts to us, not the least of which is the gift of eternal life. He fought on, he went to the cross, he died there, and there he defeated once and for all the great enemy of our souls. Is that good news? Colossians 2.15, And having disarmed the powers and authorities, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by the cross. And so because of the cross... And because of his victory there, all the spoils of the enemy belong to Christ. But Paul changes the picture up here. Instead of hoarding those gifts and riches to himself as a Roman general would have done, the conquering Jesus gives those gifts to us. How could you or I ever take lightly the gift of Christ to us? It cost him his life to give them to us. How do you receive them? 
with open hands? Do you want Christ's gift? Or are you fearful? Afraid of what it might mean if you open your hand and receive the gift? What will it do to your life? What might the Lord require of you from the gift He gave to you? How willing you are to receive the gift once again comes back to how well and how intimately you know Christ and His heart of love. He's chosen a gift for you. The blessing is yours to receive it with a grateful heart. Knowing Christ gave you that gift on purpose for a purpose. So the second goal I have for us this morning is that we see ourselves as gifted people, gifted by the Lord, and that our goal would be to know what that gift or those gifts are and to use those gifts to move one another closer to the center, to the dot in the center. And not only looking there, but looking at the dots around the outside, faithfully using your gift to move all of us closer to Christ. And that brings us then to the third and final goal at which we'll look this morning. We must see ourselves as ministers, not only as gifted people, but as ministers. Look in verse 12. Jesus gave to equip the saints for the work of the ministry. So you see, we receive gifts to use them for the sake of others, for the saints. That's what Paul says here. And by saints, he simply means this, one who follows the Lord Jesus Christ. And by God's design, guess what? Saints need one another. So if you're here this morning and you're a believer in Christ, you're a saint. Okay, you are a saint. No matter what your mother said, you're a saint. And saints need each other. By God's design, none of us are supposed to make it through this world on our own. By God's design, none of us are to make it through this world on our own. We need each other. We need to minister to one another. And so the church has done this great disservice to the kingdom of God by promoting and drawing this distinction between clergy and laity. Because it seems to communicate that only some are worthy of doing the work of the Lord, while most others are not. Let me tell you, that is not biblical. We are all called, we are all gifted by God to do the work of ministry. Yes, clergy have certain gifts certain callings. Absolutely, they're listed here in this passage. But other people have other gifts, and all of us are to use our gifts to, to minister. As we've noticed, th- th- this list is not exhaustive. Listen to how the Spirit of God inspired the Apostle Peter to describe us. So he's describing us here. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you might proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. We are all priests. We use this verse as what we call the priesthood of all believers. And we exist for this reason, to proclaim the excellencies of Christ. What does that look like? Well, this is what I imagine it might look like. That all of us 
are eager to come together to do one thing, and that's to talk about Jesus and to tell his stories. Hey, let me tell you what Jesus did for me this week. Hey, let me tell you, let me tell you the the truth that Jesus revealed to me about himself this week. And the other person who's listening, they're trying to be patient, but they're not patient because they're eager to say to you, hey, guess what the Lord taught me this week? Guess what I saw about Jesus this week? See, this is our source of unity. And it comes from having a vibrant relationship with Jesus Christ. One that's alive, one that's active, one that where things actually happen. And so we're united in our desire to talk about the excellencies of Jesus. This is how we minister to one another. Now, if this sounds like crazy talk to you, is that crazy talk? None of us act that way. And if we want to discount this picture as crazy talk, because, well, to tell the truth, we've been to too many community group activities. And we've met together for our men's and women's breakouts where, quite frankly, the excellencies of Christ were not proclaimed nearly as much as, oh, sports or politics. So from our own experience, if we say, ah, Craig, never going to happen. We're never going to get together and tell the stories of Jesus. It just shows how far we have fallen from what the Spirit of God inspired Paul to write about what the church should look like. And I say this to us, it can be this way. It can be this way. If we will rightly identify ourselves as ministers, priests of God, who exist to proclaim His excellencies. Listen to the doxology that the Apostle John writes in Revelation 1.5. To Him who loves us, And has freed us from our sins by his blood and made us a kingdom. Priests to his God and Father to him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Guess what? We cannot opt out of being ministers of Christ. None of us can opt out. Why should we want to when he spilled his blood to make us his priest? Don't opt out out. Use whatever gift God has given you to minister to others. All of us need you to do that. All of us. Look around the room. All of us. Dots in the circle. And we need you to minister to us. We need to minister to each other so that we are getting closer and closer to Christ and closer to each other. This must be our goal. And we must hold each other accountable to it. And we must identify each other rightly. I don't don't know if you've noticed in the last few weeks, but the deacons and the elders and the staff here at Redeemer have been wearing name tags. Have you noticed that? They've been wearing name tags so you can identify who, who they are. Well, all of us in this room who are believers in Christ should wear a name tag. And right under our name, whatever that name is, you should also read the word minister of Christ. That's rightly identifying ourselves and who Christ has made us to be. What Christ and who Christ has gifted us to be. 
And so you, when you are using the gift that Christ gave to you, when you are ministering with that gift, you are going to bring all of us here in some way to to unity in the faith. You're going to help us know Christ better. You're going to help move all of us together closer and closer to that dot. So in some way, my spiritual health, my spiritual health, and you say, well, you're the pastor. Yeah, and i got to be spiritual healthy. And my spiritual health is dependent on you, and, and, and you're ministering to me and us ministering to each other. So if we true love, truly love one another, we'll minister to each other. And to those who are right now outside of this circle, praying that God will use our gifts that he's given us to bring them in. These are our goals. Christ, central in all things. Seeing ourselves as gifted people and acting as ministers of Christ to proclaim the excellencies of the Lord. So, on this 20th anniversary celebration, I would like for us to forget, forget what is behind And what I mean by that is that for all believers in Christ, the glory days should never be in the past. For all believers in Christ, the glory days should never be in the past. We should never look to the past longing for what used to be. Not if we are living out these goals that are set before us. As God has designed it and as God has equipped us, glory days are always in the future. Do you believe that? Glory days, your glory days, my glory days are always in the future. Always in the future for those whose goal is to know Christ more and more and more. Whose goal is to use their gifts to bring others closer and closer to Christ. And of course, the most glorious day will be when we see Jesus. Are you looking forward to that? And the road toward that day, the road toward that day, seeing Jesus, should always be higher up. Even if that road is marked, as the song says, with pain and and suffering, still Christ is there with us. And we are drawing closer and closer to Him, and He is drawing closer and closer to us. The glory days are ahead. I'm going to close with this verse from one of my favorite old songs. Nobody sings it anymore, but it's a great one. I'm pressing on the upward way. New heights I'm gaining every day. Still praying as I'm onward bound. Lord, plant my feet on higher ground. Let's pray. Lord, we ask that you would do that. Plant our feet on higher ground, Lord, as we come to know you better and better and more and more each day. Lord, simple prayer. You've put these goals before us in your word. I did not create them. You spoke them. And so I pray, Lord, that in your faithfulness and in the abundance of your grace, you would help us to know you better and better. I pray that you would help us receive gratefully and humbly the gifts that you have given to us. I pray that you would help us live out of our true identity as those gifted 
by you. And Lord, I pray that you would make us faithful ministers. I pray that you would ban from our thoughts, dispel them from our thinking, any idea that the ministry of the gospel is for someone else, especially only for the ordained or for the church staff person. Lord, no, dispel that myth. Help us claim our identity and to live out of it, to be ministers who speak forth and declare to one another and to the world that's watching the excellencies of Christ. Do this in us and through us, we pray. And we know then, Lord, that our glory days will be ahead. We thank you now in Jesus' name. Amen. Turn to your bulletin. You'll find our last hymn. We're going to stand and sing about knowing Jesus more and more. The words are there and also the music. Let's sing out.